Welcome to Bloody Mary, a podcast about horror movies and what they mean to us. I'm your host, Kristen Lighty, and tonight I am so excited to have on the podcast, you remember him from our Alaska Before You Die episode. He did a short segment on uh, a great film, which I am not remembering right now, but... Session 9, I bet. Session 9, yes. Excellent. Tonight we have on the podcast, Derek Sheen. Hey, Derek, how are you? Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm hanging in there. This is great. I'm very excited. Uh, we had fun. Uh, Alaska show was very fun. Uh, you know, there's very few times I get to talk about horror. So because most of the people around me are exhausted from hearing about it. <laughs> I feel the same way. That's why I started the podcast. So like now you have to talk to me about movies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Alaska Before You Die Fest was so fun. They're doing it again this year. I highly recommend applying cast puts on hell of a fest and Alaska. Oh my God. So beautiful. I've never been in such a majestic place. It was pretty crazy. We drove, I mean, we did a show. I didn't do anything at Coots. I did everything remotely. She sent me and a couple other, a few other comics out to like outskirts, the outlands in Alaska to go like entertain <laughs> people in the middle of nowhere. And it was, it was crazy. I mean, I, you literally, no joke. You could see Russia. We were at the end of Alaska. <laughs> we were like at the furthermost northernmost tip. And then our host was like, you see out there that way, that tiny little black line on the horizon? That's Russia. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. You That's mean that wild. idiot wasn't joking? Like, <laughs> so it was, it was great. Also, not, uh, uh, not a bad drive. Four and a half hours through the frozen tundra. And you get to see what the, it was almost imagine what the world was like before people were there. You definitely have a sense of what everything was like. There's no telephone poles. There's no airplanes. There's no humanity. And then you just get to a pocket. Uh, and even then the pocket is like, it's, everything's wet and cold <laughs> and, you know, it's falling apart. There's not like a video only or, you know, a Kenny shoes. It's like, it's a bar and a restaurant and maybe a movie theater with one screen and everything closes at three. Yeah, I found it very oddly calming to be in. I was just like, mm -hmm. oh, it was so good. Felt really relaxed. I highly recommend that festival um, that and altercation. We just did that together. I know, like ships in the night we were there. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm bummed I didn't stay longer, but I had a lot of fun. At, I love I love Austin and that fest has been as always, but that's, I think, where we first, we met uh, each other two years ago. Yes, you are right. And I talked about Ed Gein. Yes, I do. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, I love altercation so much. It, that place just feels like, you know how a high school reunion should feel? It, yeah. it feels like that to me, like really friendly and I love everyone. It's just such a good hang with everybody. Yeah. So since you've been on the pod before, everyone knows you love horror. And I'm curious, when did you first know you loved horror, though? My mom loved horror. And and she loved, I mean, she especially loved cheesy old horror movies. Now, the crappier, cheaper, cheaper the monster, the better. So she would keep me up. She worked a, a night job as a bartender, so she wouldn't get home until one or two in the morning. So most of my childhood, she would wake me up when she got home, and I would sit on the couch as she, you know, either fed me or held me and we just watch UHF horror movies all night or whatever was on the main, you know, the, back in the old days, you would have the major, the local networks, the affiliates after like midnight, they would either play a, a, an old movie until two in the morning or they would just go radio silent. 
And uh, we had two channels out here that we were very fortunate uh, would play late night movies, not always horror, but sometimes you would get like a ring ding, like you, you, you know, one in the morning, you're like, oh my God, Equinox is going to be on, you know, and my mom would keep me up to watch that or, you know, <laughs> it, the terror from beyond space. So I, as a baby, like maybe, you know, I would say between two and, and four years old at that time, my room became progressively more filled with stuff that I didn't even always choose it, but I had all the Ravel models. My mom put them all together. The Wolfman, Dracula, the laboratory, creature. She would just put them together. And then my room was just all Ravel horror models and <laughs> a glow in the dark picture of Lon Chaney Jr. over my crib. So I think he I had that. It. I loved it. And and my of course the rest of the family was horrified, but you know, it's I grew into it and I just kind of loved it. And to be honest, I had I didn't have the you know, we did not have a super great time. You know, we had a I had a very violent uh, uh, you know, she married a very violent person. We didn't have a great time for, you know, most of my adolescence. So I really escaped into horror and not because of the violence, but I kind of liked being scared in a way that I could control it. Mm-hmm. It really gave me an outlet because going home or being home, I could be scared and I didn't have any control over it. You know, you didn't never knew when things were going to go real bad. But when I watched a horror movie, I was like this, I, I, I know when I can be scared and I can turn it off or, you know, the end of it is has a resolution. So I kind of, I don't think I totally realized that till I was older, but I think there was part of my escapism because it, yeah, it wasn't so much about the violence or the gore. Although later on that would become, you know, a thing, but it wasn't my favorite part of a horror movie. I like being scared on a level where I was like, okay, that's my choice, you know? Definitely. And it feels powerful to turn it off like that. Mm-hmm. And imagine as only a movie kid, that my mom ever turned off. She let me watch anything I wanted. Wait, what was the only thing she turned off? The only movie she ever walked in and stopped. I mean, she let me watch anything. She, she stole a, she had a bootleg copy of Halloween before oh, wow. it even came out <laughs> on VHS. This is 79, maybe 80. We had one of the first top loading VCRs. My 11th birthday, she made me dinner and I got to sit in their bedroom and watch on their rear projection TV. And I didn't know what the movie was, but the theme music came up and I was like, oh, how is this happening? And I got to watch <laughs> Halloween at home. And she was like, don't tell anybody where we got it from. But, you know, and then the we will come for us. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I got to watch. I mean, I but she didn't watch anything. The only movie she ever said no to was William Lustig's Maniac. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was one of the few where she was like, this movie fucking sucks. It's all about being like, you know, most of the at the time, the slashers were all women were the victims. They were portrayed as weak, you know, vulnerable. They'd be taken advantage of in the movie to a point where you're like, this just seems so exploitative. But that movie took everything to another level where it was just hyper cruelty. And we were 20 minutes in and she was like, I'm not I'm done. That's where I that's where I stopped. Yeah, I feel like that, that one level. at a certain point, it's like, who is this for? This is this feels traumatizing yeah. to watch. It, well, it is. And I don't know. I mean, you know, Lustig stuff's always been pretty exploitative, but that's still a movie I've never revisited. Mm-hmm. I only watched the first 20 minutes of it and I loved Tom Savini. I was a huge like that's what got me into to makeup. And, you know, for a while in my early teens, I mean, my bedroom is a studio where I was. You know, I was, I uh, did sculpting, painting, I did latex appliances. I I had a deal with a junior high school where they would let me go up and fire stuff in their kilns. 
So nice. I was able to do like a facial appliances, masks. What is uh, the uh, the the latex piece you made that you're most proud of? <laughs> um, so I built a fake uh, forearm and a hand uh, so that I could fit my own hand into it <laughs> under my. So I spent weeks punching hair into it. Oh wow! Uh, and painting it, uh, airbrushing. Uh, I used fake enamic or acrylic nails to get the nails just right. Painted everything so that, it, I mean, it looked real. Uh, and then I also, I uh, would fill it with um, blood packs and chicken bones. I would keep all the chicken bones from dinner and just stuff them into this thing. Nice. And more than once, I either uh, smashed it with a hammer. Uh, <laughs> Did you do this to like unsuspecting people? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember but... though, like my own thing. I, I, one time I came out, uh, I came out in the living room and I laid newspaper down in front of the TV. I didn't explain to my mom and dad what were going on, what was going on. They were watching Shogun when it was first premiering, right? So I interrupted their broadcast. I came out and I laid down a bunch of newspapers and then I walked away and I, and, and went back in my room and my dad was like, what the fuck is it going to happen? And then I came back out with a razor blade and I said, I guess this is it. And then I just cut my arms up both sides. I had a baby ear squib that was filled with blood. Oh. So I just shot the blade and I dulled the razor blade out in shot class and cut my wrists all the way up and just let them bleed on the newspaper. And of course, my mom and dad just smoked. And they were like, <laughs> well, that's great. That's really great, son. Wow. That's... Can you get out of the way? Oh, shit. That's fun. That's some Harold and Maude shit. <laughs> yeah, well, and again, also, one of my, I think my early childhood memory is going to see that in the theater with my mom. I think that explains, probably, that's probably part, part of the DNA, but that and my Cat Stevens uh, obsession. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a parent, and hearing that story, part of me is like, you made the right choice, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> I was a nightmare. <laughs> I'm sure you were a delight. All right. For <laughs> us to talk about tonight, Derek has chosen this year's A24 pick, Talk to Me, which I was really shocked to find out there is a large group of people out there that hate this movie. Yes. Like, Why? It's fun. It's spooky. It's A24. It's shot by two twin brother uh, Australian YouTubers, <laughs> come on! That's yeah, fun. <laughs> their YouTube videos are great. They're goofy, but they're I know. Great. I need to. I need to check that out. So uh, I didn't get into them till after the movie came out, and I was like, I gotta. They're. I guess they were pretty big, you know, into content uh, development. But this is this is such a departure from everything they've done on their YouTube channel. Really? What is the vibe of the YouTube channel? I'm not really familiar at all. They're goofy, like they're goofy videos. They're gory, but they're funny, but they're also, you know, they're humor. And mm -hmm. it's a lot of, and it's a lot of dumb YouTube humor. Like it's two dingleberries making stupid videos. Mm. They're really well done. This was on a level that I didn't, you know, I, I went in expecting that it would be okay. I knowing A24, I was like, well, it'll either be, let me, let me ask you this. Who hasn't? been had by an A24 movie yet where you've seen the trailer and you're like oh shit yeah this is gonna be great I can't wait to see this movie about this 
crazy sheep. I was just thinking about that. Like, I think the only one I really didn't like was Lamb. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, this movie's going to be a a mind blower. And then even like, it just occasionally I get, I fall for it. You know, the Green Knight, which I thought was beautiful, but I'm like, oh, this is totally different than what I got sold. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm still seen... mad about Bo is Afraid. I'll be mad at, the, at that movie forever. I'll be mad, so mad at that movie that I don't even know how to process it yet. It was so long. Like, I feel like Ari Aster has just surrounded himself with yes men and no yes. one is there to bring sanity anymore. You showed me a trailer with a super tramp song in it. Clearly about a guy with anxiety who just lost his mom. And I'm like, hard to relate. I am so in the theater and you got me with this dude. I don't know what's happening there. Why is that happening? Zoom uh, apparently agrees with what Derek is saying right now because it's shooting <laughs> okay. fireworks off behind him. <laughs> that was weird. And <laughs> and I, I I sat and I was like, I am so ready. I watched the trailer a few times. I showed my wife. I'm like, this is going to be deep, but it's going to be good. Like, it looks like something I can really relate to. And then I got in the theater and I felt so fucking trapped and gaslit and there were 60 people in that theater and I was the only survivor because I was so mad. I wanted to see how it ended. I had to stay. I forced myself to stay. I I could not imagine sitting in a theater for that. Oh, it was rough. And I saw Skinamarink in a theater and I, you know, everybody that I know that saw it was like, nah, I I loved it. I sat in there the whole time. I was like, I want to see where it goes. I want to, I'm into organic development. I want to see where things go. I'll give things a chance. If I don't understand them, sometimes I'm like, well, I just admit that maybe that's me. I just need to experience it. And then I'll take it home and, you know, like putting the medicine in the dog food. Like later it's a self-release thing or time release. <laughs> but yeah, this was one of those movies that made me so mad. I almost had to replace all the drywall in my house. Like it was three <laughs> hours where I'm like, you fucking lied to me. You cut a trailer that was so powerful and so good and sold me a movie that was nowhere in the film that I watched. Nowhere in that movie was was the movie that was sold to me in the trailer. There was nothing. There was nothing salvageable about it. It's I, I you've heard about directors who like they have like a um their passion project, right? And so their first couple movies or three movies or whatever, they have to play by the studio rules because they're like eventually if my work is successful, I will be allowed the opportunity to let my true vision shine. And I think that's what happened with this is he's been holding on to this movie forever. And he's like, I just got to make these two commercially acceptable films that are viable. They're going to put me on the map and then I can do whatever I want. Sometimes that works out okay, but for the most part, it's usually just uh, it, it is uh, hubris, full hubris on display. Oh, absolutely. And his vision was, I think, just to trap people for three hours. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what he said, too. Like, I just want to create a three hour anxiety attack. And I was like, oh, I'd love to do that, too. I'd love to put you in the trunk of a car and drive you over fucking state lines. That's what I would like to do. And I'll play that super tramp song over and over again. Yeah, not fair. Not cool. <laughs> so this I saw this and I, you know, it looked like a teen movie. But I love the concept, you know. I love a ha- I love haunted artifacts. I love that stuff. Yes. You know? Speaking of which, why don't you tell us about what you ordered? I so I ordered. It hasn't shown up. I thought it was going to be here today, uh, but it's tracking for tomorrow or Saturday. But a twenty four for their subscription members, they have special stuff that they'll put out, like lo- like short. Uh, uh, what do they call it? Um, uh, limited edition stuff, right? 
So they have the hand, a full-size uh, uh, version of the hand that comes in a wooden box and it's got all the art on it. So you can read all the stuff that's been, you know, graffitied onto the hand. And it just sits on your desk and it's an incense holder. And, you know, I, I think in the great words of Molly Hatchett, you were flirting with disaster, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not touching that thing. Only from the wrist. <laughs> Only from the rest of it. But I'm not touching it. So talk to me. What made you pick that movie to talk about? Because I know you were really excited about Session 9. I'm doing a deep dive yes. on that. But then this came out. So what was it that made you, I need to talk about this? You know, a lot of it was when I first saw it, it really grabbed me because there were, there were some, I mean, I know people, some people were really polarized over it, whatever, you know, I think they were either, their expectations were that it was going to be like a gory, horror thing. I mean, it was horror on a, on a, on the level that I enjoy, which is um, the, that horror of inevitability where you, you realize that the people that are in this situation are hurtling headlong into a place they they that there is no rescue from. You can clearly see that. That's the intent. And there's something about that that it compels me. I don't enjoy it in that sense, but I like watching it because there's something about that journey that's that I like that kind of fear where you can't come back. It's why I, I used to love like that style of like possession horror is the thing that scares me the most is losing control and not having control. And this is another one of those movies that really fits into that 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 th that theme, that thematic, you know, that thing that not having control, the anxiety of just being, you know, uh, set on a journey that you can't stop, like Hereditary. Mm -hmm. Everyone in that movie, that's the inevitable conclusion starts at the beginning that you're all going to die. It just is the way it is. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It's already been set in motion. So it's just watching these people go through this horrific thing, and also they don't paint the most likable characters in this movie mm -hmm. but it's for a reason and i think that's what really polarized people is that like everyone in this movie make makes the dumbest decisions right yeah but there's a purpose to it and if you give the movie a second watch you start to see the motivation kind of come through of like why they have allowed these characters to make dumb decisions first off it's a movie about addiction I mean, that's the metaphor is that it's it's really all about addiction and it turns you into a junkie and and you're watching people who are already reckless, you know, and they're young and they think they're going to live forever oh, and yeah. they're not I afraid to that. try things, you know, that like I'll try things. I mean, it's not going to can't hurt me. And if it does hurt me, it won't hurt me for long because I'm young. And and the whole concept of like using TikTok and social media, to, it's like a challenge, TikTok challenge, you know, and I, and I love that. I love that conceit a lot, um, how they made it more modern. But you know that you're not in a regular teen horror movie from that opening tracking shot. From the moment that movie opens and that tracking shot through the party, I already felt like, oh, we're in we're in actual horror territory. Mm -hmm. I gotta yeah. pull like and and the fact that that ends with um, no punches being pulled really like I was in my seat. I'm like, oh, these guys aren't here to dick around. Like, they really want to fucking make a horror movie. And yeah. and it was like, I mean, it it felt like I, I like they weren't catering to an audience. They were like, we're making a real honest to God horror film. We want to affect you on a level. And when you meet, meet Mia for the first time, you know, and you realize she lost her mom and they set things into motion, you already know, like, this person's vulnerable at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So we're already set up to accept that, like, 
she's going to make bad decisions. You know, not everybody handles grief and loss in the, in the you know, in the best way. And so we, we already have this, everything's kind of set into motion. But what I love is that they, they give her these friends and, and, you know, and, and people around her who are this huge support network. And right off the bat, you kind of see that like, we're not playing in a regular, you know, uh, in the, you know, the, the standard one track horror movie where, you know, we set things up and, you know, we've done a little bit of character development, their teens, anything could happen. There's a killer or there's something, they're just going to fuck with supernatural things and then things are going to get out of control. There's levels to this where they really humanize everybody to the they point. They do. Where- and speaking of her allies, you know, I feel like they, Jade and her mom kind of turn on Mia quite quickly and easily. Mm-hmm. And there's this sense of being othered outside the, the chosen family, you know, which yeah. that felt really hard too. Oh man, Miranda Otto is... She's so good already. I was so happy when she showed up in the movie. Oh, yeah. I also feel like that gave it some weight. I mean, her being her her being unhappy with Mia was way more painful to watch than her own father, you know. Yes. Because I think she wanted approval from that family so much. And but again, that's also, you know, it's a white family in Australia. And you should definitely you can see that there is uh, uh the conceit of like being othered and kind of wanting to, even though it looked like they have a great house, like her mom and dad have a beautiful house, but there's mm-hmm. just something about, you know, also like her relationship with Riley. And I feel like she just wanted a different family. Yeah. She didn't feel welcome and in her own home. And maybe that's also when we see what her mom was like, we realize that that's also probably a large part of it too. Her mom was you know, uh, had a lot of, I mean, dealing with depression and addiction issues and suicidal. It, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of depth right out of the gate. And and that was one thing that really drew me into it. And then the mythology, the mythology of this film is super fun. I really enjoyed the, the conceit of the fucking haunted hand that's been, you know, it's been uh, plastered. And the fact that like, it's not just um, the party scene where they where Mia shows up at the party and nobody likes her. Do you realize they really never explain that either? Just nope. Haley and Haley's friends don't like her at all. You know what I kind of took that as is um, that's a terrible age to exist. Like you don't know mm-hmm. how to be a person yet. And, you know, she had been dating Daniel. I think the death of her mother and that trauma made people back away from her. And like, oh, weird girl, you know, well, that's I just my own interpretation. Like, why'd you bring her here? She's a bummer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I, you know, this movie kind of brought me back to my preteen days of like always trying to fit in with older kids, always trying to be cool. And it really had just like a Lord of the Flies feel to it. I remember my friends, they weren't really my friends, but it was people I thought were my friends. They used to play what they called the pass out game. And like they would try to make themselves pass out. And I remember having to tell them, please don't do this in my house. I don't want to have to explain your dead body to my mom. And like, I was uncool then. You know? <laughs> it was just oh, such man. a wildly dangerous, dumb thing to do. We did that. I mean, we did the pass out game. I'd, I'd only had it done once. And uh, and it was, I'll, I'd never do it after I woke up. It came out of it. I would never do it again. But I, you know, I'd never like 
you know, you do the breathing in and out real fast, hyperventilate, and then they push on your carotid artery and then you just pass out. And apparently I just went, I went home, I saw my mom and dad. I like had a conversation because at the time I was li in living in a completely different state. And I really like, I had a um, lucid hallucination, uh, you know, in my brain DMT trip probably. Wow. And then I came back. I thought I'd been, I thought I was out for a while. I was out 10 seconds, you know? Wow. But I was like, that's it. Like that's too fucked up. And then I did it to somebody else. They stood up after I pushed on their artery, like they passed out and then they opened their eyes. And then they stumbled forward and passed out and hit their head on a table. Oh, so was, no. Let's never do this game again. This game is a terrible game. We just did shit like that, you know? Yeah. And that kid came back to school the next day and, you know, he had a neck brace and bandages oh. on his head. That's what we did. We just did weird shit. But then we also did shit like that with drugs. Yeah. When we got a little older, you know, we'd try new things. Let's put a little, this guy says he can put angel dust on our weed, you know? Yeah. Let's do it. And then, I mean, we crawled on our hands and knees to the AMPM because we were afraid that people could see us. So we all <laughs> crawled to the store. Oh, no. And I spent $500 on Big League Chew and a, a bag of Doritos. Oh, I had my a bunch God. of money from my, um, I had a yard cleaning business. So I had all the cash in my pocket and I was so freaked out. I just gave the cashier all of it. And oh, I was like, God. tell anybody we were here. And then we all turned around and went outside and got on our hands and knees and crawled back to the house. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like this, I mean, it makes sense. Like, you know, the, this, that party, that party scene with Haley and everybody, I actually liked that crew. I liked those people. They were interesting. They were funny. They, they seemed so real and like people that I knew growing up, which I think is another reason why I really liked the writing and the casting a lot, but also because it didn't, they didn't do that thing where they usually do in a movie where there's teens, where it's 25 years old, you know, 25 year olds who are fucking flawless yeah. and gorgeous. Like, you know, uh, I don't remember the the actor's name plays uh, Haley, but, you know, they're gender nonconforming. Mm -hmm. And which I, I was like, that's such a great choice that like a very diverse group of friends and representation and the fact that like, you know, at some point you just realize like, like this is a, this is a real group of people. Like mm -hmm. these are real friends in a real situation. Never once did it take me out of the movie at all. When I, you know, I didn't see anybody who I'm like, that's a model. I saw these, the really great representation of real people, which would, I think also disarms you a little bit because then you start to feel relaxed and you trust that like, oh, well, you know, I recognize that person. I recognize that person from my life. You know, you never feel like distant, you know, when you watch a, uh, one of those 90s horror movies or something from the aughts, like I Know What You Did Last Summer. We don't know anybody who looks like Freddie Prinze Jr. <laughs> no, we do not. <laughs> and when they get killed, we're like, fuck yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I would say that that also made the scene with Riley so much more brutal because he oh. is that kid brother you knew, mm -hmm. right? I had to fast forward on the rewatch because I just, oh, those scenes where he's harming himself are so brutal. It's so hard to watch. And when the early in the film, when Mia picks him up, you know, from late from school because his own sister forgot to pick him up and he's having that conversation with his lumpy friend who's trying to get him to smoke a cigarette with him. You know, mm -hmm. and I'm like, fuck, that's my friend growing up. Like I've had those <laughs> conversations. Yeah. But that scene in the car where Mia picks him up and, and they're just singing Chandelier by Sia at the top of their lungs. And you're like, 
wow, these two people are so close. And she, like, he really loves and trusts her like his own sister, which makes that whole turn that much more painful where you get even more mad at Mia. Mm -hmm. You're just like, if you put it in the, you know, in the context of like drug addiction, that's how, you know, that's not unsimilar to how I started, you know, an older kid that I really looked up to that took me under their wing and was like, just try it. You know, even though my own brother was like, don't give him that shit. When his back is turned, they're like, eat a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't great. I, you know, so it really shows how like how fragile, you know, especially like young people's brains can be. But when that shit happens to Riley, it just takes everything to a completely different. It feels like that's the second act where now we're in the real horror. You yeah. know, where things are really starting to turn. And they've given us all of the the tools and the warnings ahead of time that, you know, this is going to, but that comes out of nowhere. I mean, it really comes out of nowhere that him trying to, I mean, the scene where he tries to pull out his own eye and you're like, this is so, I didn't think, I didn't have any hope. And when, when his sister stopped him, I was like, oh, all right. Okay. Like I didn't expect that either. I expected they were just going to do the thing that they would do in a horror movie and just go, this is the most extreme thing ever. Now he's dead. Yeah. They let him live, which is far worse. To have another scene like that. And when, but when you see what they're doing to him, that was so fucking unsettling. Yeah. I mean, that for me was really hard to watch because just that few seconds where you see what's happening to him when he's in, in this other realm, just the fear and the panic and the horror and just, your brain can't wrap around exactly what you're seeing. Just torture it again. I'm like, we're not on, we're not in a regular horror movie. Something else is happening here. And it, it felt like these guys were like, just trust us. If you want to be scared, just let go and trust us. We'll actually, we're, we're going to do what we advertised. We're going to scare the shit out of you, you know, and, and gave us something else. I, I think that's another thing about the movie that I really like is I walked away thinking about it. And replaying things in my head and listening to conversations and going like, there's so many clues. There's so much mythology going on. that It's going to unveil itself over time if they ever follow the story along. Little tip. And if they never make a sequel, even better. Because it just leaves all these unanswered questions that I really like. You know, the fact that like Haley's like, oh, I mean, it was the hand of a psychic or a Satanist, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, where's, you know, there's got to, there's one hand, there's got to be another hand. Good point. I didn't right? think of I that. Mean, he, he mentions it, but it's in passing so quick. And but then they never know if it, you know Emmett. You know Emmett, my friend Emmett Montgomery, and I have oh, talked yeah. about this film a great deal. And one point he brought up is um, they never say the guy's dead. Oh my god! Say it's the hand of a dead person. It's just the hand of a psychic or a satanist. So it's highly possible that the other hand is just walking around somewhere doing something really fucking evil you know so (laughs) so i'm like there's so many things they could do with it and i i love shit like that like you know there are very few horror sequels that that manage to like follow through on their own mythology but i feel like these two guys are they're they they have played against type from the opening of that film until the end and they you know also they gave us a great wrap around i mean it's exactly what we expected oh i really loved it i don't get why people didn't like it Uh, it's the origin of how the thing is how it all the cycle and 
the, you know, the fact that, by the way, what a small world, right? I mean, all of this is happening. Everyone knows each other. Like, you know, the, the first guy, um, uh, Cole, you know, who finds his brother, like at the beginning in that, that party scene, like he knows Joss. He knows the, 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 the dude, the bigger dude who's like, you know, got, who carries the hand with him all the time. Haley's friend. Like he knows Joss. They all know each other. This hand has made its way around the small community of people. Where they're at in Australia isn't big. You know, this, you, you tend to go, oh, well, I mean, if Joss got it from somebody that Cole knows, then they probably got it from someone they know, which means it's just a small circle of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the fly in the ointment is the end scene where apparently it feels like you're in Romania or, or a, you know, someplace Eastern European block country that could also be the other hand right so like you just know that like this is you know this is how things sort of start is it takes a victim and then uh but uh, i just i don't know i'm babbling because i i there's so many little parts of this movie that i love but it really um i watched it three times now because i really loved examining i did this with hereditary where i probably watched it nine times and not for the horror but after a while i wanted to see how the sausage was made Mm-hmm. How the mechanics of these things fit together because it's fascinating to me that like it's no perfect to me. That's one of those movies that from beginning to end, it is um it's a no perfect horror movie. I mean, it takes you to places you don't expect. It uh it scares you in ways you weren't prepared for. And there's an unexpected gravity to everything because it is so grounded in this real world. And and the unexpected, it take it shows you things that you weren't your brain wasn't ready to see. And, yeah. and those are really great elements of horror that can work really well if you don't overdo it. It's why I don't like a lot of gore anymore. I'm like, it's just yeah, it's fun for a funny horror movie, but it really takes me out of stuff because I'm like, I don't need that to like, I don't need um I d I don't need that to be exoticized or you know, or to be fetishized. I feel like that's the kind of thing we shouldn't be excited about, you know? Yeah. Shouldn't whenever there's excessive about. gore, I feel like I want to know more about the characters and I feel mm-hmm. like they're skimping out on that with some gore stuff. Yeah. I mean, the gory is part of this movie is Riley, you know, Riley harming himself. And that, yeah. oh, that hit me in a different way than like, you know, your silly type dead again, type kind of gore, you know, oh, it's it so bad. It's so bad and it's so hard to watch. And, because you really love this kid, you know, and again, it's like, it's a drug. I mean, they're clearly that's the metaphor they're playing with too, is, you know, he's just, now he's in the, uh, he's just in the throes of this awful thing that's taken over him. And he only had to do was try it once, you know, and not even for, he's only going to do it for 50 seconds, yeah. not 90 seconds, you know, and we're only going to take a couple hits and then we'll be fine. And, uh, you know, Mia, I think the thing that people didn't like about it is like, Mia and and Riley's sister weren't the best people. Nobody in that movie is a truly good person, you know, who's making awesome decisions. But I think that's what scares people is the fact that when they go to a horror movie, they don't want to be faced with real life situations and real people. They go for the escapism or they want to cheer on the people who are getting killed. You know, they're excited for that. And these are people that you can identify with. And I think sometimes subconsciously that pisses people off. 
I do too. And as I was watching that scene where Maya has Riley in the wheelchair and she's getting ever closer to the highway, like all I could keep thinking was, yeah, the social contract's real thin these days. Like anyone could do (laughs) anything like that at any time. And now it just feels like, I don't know what exactly is going on, but it feels like people are more inclined to endanger others in, in ways like that. So, yeah, it was a little terrifying to sit there and watch that and think like, yeah, I could see that happening. Uh, I think the other thing that might have actually made people mad is the fact that when she calls her friend and it's like, come to the house, I think I I think I figured out how to stop it. We're all on that side of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think people get generally get like, well, don't go there. Why would you do that? That's stupid. Why are you going to the house? She's clearly going to not. She's not there. She's bait and switch that the whole reason we get to see that part of the factory is that like we know that and it makes hopefully you go like well what the fuck is she planning you know Mm -hmm. but i think it really threw people off and i think they got more mad that they were like well why are you falling for the oldest trick in the book Mm -hmm. and just little things like that but that's that's how people react in those situations you know she wanted to see that she still trusted her friend despite all this other stuff that she had pulled she still had hope that like, okay, she's not going to, she's changed. She's, we're going to fix this. Well, and, and one would think there'd be enough social safety net in a hospital to stop someone from walking away with a patient. <laughs> one who was in that bad of shape. Did you feel, I got the feeling at the end of that, and there's spoiler alerts for everybody. If you haven't seen it, then, you know, I'm sorry. But when we realized that, it seems like she's probably crossed over at the end and she's in the hospital again. You know, she gets up from the freeway accident completely unscathed and and now she's just in the hospital and you're kind of like, oh shit, okay. Mm-hmm. But you see like uh, uh, Miranda Otto and, and, and the kids are leaving the hospital and Riley looks well again. Yeah. Like they're all leaving and they're, I, f- I feel like, that was in real like really happening mm-hmm. like it wasn't just a dream like she's walking through and again time also doesn't exist right because like she you know at that point there is no she's floating she's free floating in space there is no time in death right so this is probably months ahead of when she's been killed you know mm-hmm. or whenever but it's like oh well i i got it i got it. i was like oh well at least there's a happy ending you know, oh, yeah. I, you know, I didn't think about it that it was months. I thought perhaps the ghost was manipulating her mind and maybe Riley's injuries weren't as bad as she thought they were. But I think your point makes more sense. Then maybe she was because uh, I wasn't sure how to piece it together, but I felt like that's a re- that was a thing that was happening in the real world at that moment. And I was like, well, at least that's a happy ending that Riley is OK mm-hmm. and he's going to go home, you know. And his family's all still alive, right? Everybody made it through this, okay? The only one who really got fucked was uh, Mia. Like, that's the only one who got... And her dad, I think. Yeah, and her dad. Oh, yeah, her dad got really fucked. That was Pretty hard, yeah. (laughs) God. Yeah, I told it. That was really brutal, too. That was hard to watch. Yeah. But again, that's the thing I really really appreciated about it is, like, when they did show violence, it wasn't, like, to stimulate people. The violence was hard and it was fast and it and you felt empathy and you kind of I mean, it was cringe inducing, which is how it's supposed to be. You, mm-hmm. you 
I think as a society, we've become very accustomed to not blanching when we see things. And that's the wrong reaction. I mean, we're, you know, our instincts are supposed to do the opposite. And I think years of just being, you know, exposed to horrific things, you know, just having the availability of that stuff has uh, sort of worn us down like soapstone. And then we just go like, Haha, well, everybody's dead. And we just, we, and we, we, we want it. We want to see the violence. And it's when you show it in that respect where it seems very real and very plausible, and this is what really happens, then it sucks and you don't want to see it. You know, mm-hmm. my mom, my mom always said that, I mean, we loved horror movies, but she was like the most uncomfortable I've ever felt in the theater was when she went to see uh, Grand Canyon, which I think was an Altman film. I don't think I've seen that. Uh, one. So it was kind of like one of these like early 90s, uh, you know, sort of Altman-esque, big star-studded cast, uh, sort of like the whole movie is basically like a tracking shot, just following all these characters through their everyday life. And one of them is a Hollywood producer played by Steve Martin. And uh, he has a stalker. And the movie's a comedy, sort of, right? In the middle of nowhere... This stalker shows up while Steve Martin's talking to someone and just shoots him in the chest. And everyone on the lot just stops what they're doing, of course, because he's heard a gunshot. And and then the person shoots themselves, which you see off camera. But she said the most horrifying part to me was the fact that not only did that seem realistic, but it was so realistic that they had Steve Martin piss his pants oh, when wow. he fell to the ground. Because and she's like, and because that's what your body does. And she's like, what they don't show in movies is the after effects of actual violence. They only show the violence as it's glorified in some way. So people don't understand that when you hurt somebody, like there's real world damage, whether they die or not. You know, her big joke was like, I would always love to like if the 007 movies were real, I would love to go to the underground lair after Bond is done getting through the armies of like fucking bad guys. She's like, cause I bet 70% of those people are either quadriplegics or suffering from mass bleed outs, but aren't dead yet. Cause she's like, just cause you snap somebody's neck, they're not dead. Mm-hmm. They're just paralyzed. She's like, so here's a bunch of people that probably don't have any medical insurance scattered about a million dollar. Hank. she's like, can you imagine how many people are just like, help me. But all we see is like the shooting and the neck breaking and then they move on to the next person. It's like, but there's real damage. That's the, you know, that's the thing about film violence. I think that's always very off-putting to me is the fact that there's not, they don't show that there are, uh, that there are real world repercussions from what happens and we, that we shouldn't be excited to see it. I didn't, I wasn't excited to see Riley, uh, me his dad get, stabbed and you know gutted i wasn't uh, boy the stuff with riley was really hard to watch and that's not the horror you know those are the things that shock you into reality for a second and and then we get back into the sort of slow tension building again and it really feels like you've been jerked out of your seat a lot more and you know like in uh in hereditary when we're in the car when uh when his sister's having her asthma attack you know, her, her, uh, she's having an allergic reaction to nuts. We've all seen the trailer, right? We all saw the trailer before the movie came out. We did not expect that girl to die 20 minutes into the movie in the most horrific way possible. And they never even show it. Not until the hard cut, you know, five minutes later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a flash, like the ring, you know, where you're just like, this is the scene of the girl in the closet. But 
they never show it and it is the most like that the first time i saw it in the theater you could hear a pin drop the whole time that that kid just sat behind the wheel of the running car and didn't want to look in the rearview mirror like we've all been in a situation like that where we fucked up so bad that we just shut down and the shock is just like i can't face what just happened and that to me is way more horrifying than seeing someone and watching someone get beheaded yeah it's how it affects us that you know i mean real horror is all about you know the inability to have any control mm-hmm. and you know i i where I, I sound like a fucking jerk off college professor um <laughs> i take your class i was curious what do you think it means with the scene in the beginning where we see Mia not be able to put the kangaroo out of its misery. And in the end, we see her in the same position as the kangaroo. What do you think they're trying to say there? That's interesting. I still kind of, I kind of roll that scene over in my mind. I mean, I think a lot of it is, um, I, I think a lot of it is Riley understanding that there's a merciful way to act and, and and that Mia is still not accepting that death is, you know, any reconciliation, there's no reconciliation in death. She's still grieving her mom and feeling like, and and very selfish. She has, you know, I think and, and inhabited her mom's death as her own, you know, personal death. And she is, I think, had having a very publicly hard time with it. And I think that's partly why Haley's like, why are you bringing her? She's a fucking bummer. You know, is there seems to be, you know, that need to get attention for something. And 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 the fact that she also doesn't accept that it's a suicide. And I, I think that there's just a lot of her issue with mortality is just played out in that scene that she just doesn't won't accept it, feels like there's a way around it without having to face it, without having to face the death of her mom, which she's clearly not facing. She's trying to find ways around that, which is why she gets you know, roped into this, you know, this, this situation is an escape. And Mm -hmm. even though she hits the gas and you think she's going to run it over, she stops because she realizes, I think that there's a finality to it and she doesn't want to see what's on the other side. She doesn't want to know what that feeling's like. So she backs up and escapes. It's very much a coward's way out. And it's a huge crack in the fissure between her and Riley right there. I mean, moments before you saw how close they were, and and then you realize like, oh, she's really has an issue with finality. And she's clearly, you know, her mom's death is manifesting itself in all kinds of ways, unhealthy ways. Because mm-hmm. Riley sees that as an act of mercy. Mm-hmm. You know, why would you let that thing suffer? Why would you leave it there? It's wrong. Put it out of its misery. You have the power to do that. And she does not accept that power. And I think that that plays into things later when you see how she how eager she is when she touches the other side you know or when she once someone fakes her mom's voice yeah you know and brings her in how susceptible she is to not being able to reconcile actual death did you know it was someone faking being her mom right away or did you actually think it was her mom I definitely thought it was somebody faking. I, I thought, thought it was, was her mom. <laughs> I, I really felt like someone <laughs> was able to go like, this is, because they could, you know, at some point, I think, I think it's Joss actually that says that sometimes they can read your minds. Mm-hmm. They're in you. So, they're they're in you. so sometimes they can read your mind. 
and uh, and you know, because they said something to somebody else in the room while someone was possessed and they were able to say something about their personal life and they were shocked. And that's what I think causes them to go, yes, yeah, sometimes they can read everybody's minds. They know what you're thinking. And so I think someone saw that, you know, like me is like, oh, she's a hot button. This is what she's dealing with. I can sense all the grief coming off of her, you know, yeah. and then they, whoever, whatever uh, uh, malevolent thing took over at that point was like, this is how I get it. This is how I get to stay connected longer. I know that she is so unwilling to accept her mother's death that I, if I can get her to keep this kid's hand on, on my hand for much longer, they knew that they would, I, they, they knew that she was very susceptible. Yeah. It's a good note for me to remember to never trust a ghost. <laughs> never trust a ghost. It's what no. the t-shirt says. What if yeah. I had a t-shirt that was like, never trust the ghost. Well, I do think my worst nightmare would be coming back as a ghost to be mocked by a room full of teenagers. Like, Oh God, that would be the worst. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a living hell. All right. So we, in, in terms of themes, you know, we discussed peer pressure, addiction, escapism, grief. Were there any other themes that really jumped out at you? I mean, not those are the big underlying takeaways. It's a for pretty me. I mean, rich a, buffet as of now. Yeah, it's pretty rich. I mean, and there, uh, upon you know multiple viewings, there's a lot more to see in there. I mean, these guys really, I mean, they they really packed that 93 minutes full of story. It's rich with character development and and in such a like expedited way. There's there was so much like there's so much done with so little. They give you so much in a, in a dialogue without doing that cheap exposition thing where they explain things or over-explain things. They yes, give you and- character motivations and the way that other people communicate. And you're like, oh, that's the backstory that I get. Okay. Yeah. And I feel like nothing ever needs to be more than 90 minutes. And I'll die on that hill. <laughs> I'm with you. I just saw uh, the uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. And, uh, and again, actually, my wife and I were the only ones left in the theater. I won't see it. Nope. Nothing needs to be that long. Nope. Three, almost four hours long. And whew. That's a half a shift. No. (laughs) That's work. Yeah. Work day. Jesus. So (laughs) what was your, what was your favorite or most moving part of talk to me? I mean, I think it's the scene with, with Riley and and Mia in the car. I, I think that that just really, that sets a tone uh, actually that whole scene sets a tone because it's got three different parts to it, you know, where you get to see them sort of like in this carefree close moment where Riley's with his favorite person. And then, you know, 30 seconds later, you get to see Riley be totally deflated and sort of the hero worship already has cracks in the fissure. And, and, and I feel like it's a lot about family. It says a lot about grief and how people deal with loss. I mean, it, you know, that whole idea of just trying to move around it and not facing it and not getting out of the car, that that I think really had a lot of gravity to it because everything that gets set in motion after that, you really feel like Riley's the one who kind of got fucked in this whole deal because nobody really truly cares about him. His own sister just left him, didn't pick him up from school because she was so into her, you know, talking to her boyfriend on, and on a text chat and you know Mia had to go get him it's dark his own friend is like smoke a cigarette with me I don't know who cares you're an idiot you know his mom doesn't care like he just the only person that seems to care is Mia and then 
that just gets ruined on that car ride where he realizes, wow, she couldn't even do that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I feel like he's, you know, the saddest thing is that he gets set up for failure right from the get go. And it, it's also weird because, you know, for it seems like Miranda Otto's character is very much into her daughter's life. But Riley's life seems very secondary. And I, I, I don't ever think they explain, but it clearly, you know, a family that's gone through a divorce. Right. I mean, she's that overprotective tiger mom thing. Mm-hmm. she's much more focused on her daughter probably because that's who she relates to more and the son is just kind of out there i'm and, you know and given the absence of the father you know i can't help but wonder if she's trying to kind of propel jude and or, or jade into more of an adult role you know like to co-facilitate the household mm-hmm. which is always fun as a kid you know <laughs> Oh God. <laughs> that's yeah, that's a fun, that's a fun place to be. Um, but I, you know, I feel like I, I feel like that 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 poor kid is, I mean, all he really wants is acceptance. And he's also at that age where he is gawky and he's awkward and even his own friends kind of treat him shitty, you mm-hmm. know. And he sees something in Mia where she trusts him and is like, it's the sister that he wanted, you know. That's what he was, I think he you know, expected Jade to be like that big sister but she's a real big sister and all that kind of gets i mean it already starts to fall apart within the first 20 minutes of the movie when you see the motivation that she's so much more wrapped up in in herself and wrapped up in her inability to process what happened or you know accept what happened and that poor kid is the one who's just like i am so eager to be liked and accepted that i am willing to do this thing even though i just saw what it does and, but I want to be part of the group, you know, I want to be a grown up. Mm-hmm. And it, I think that's the most heartbreaking part of the movie to me is, you know, he, they really play him out to just be a complete innocent and he doesn't deserve any of that. And he also don't see that in horror very often. Typically, I think to offset some of the brutality that happens to someone, they will give them humanity, but also a little bit of tension so that the you know the audience doesn't feel so bad if something happens yeah. well you know they made some bad choices this had me thinking judgment. about gage in pet cemetery you know or that um beautiful bright-eyed little boy that you're just like yeah. oh he's so cute and lovely and then semi like oh no oh it's it's so much i i i am um, I just watched Mike Flanagan's House of Usher thing, which if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend investing your time. It is so worth it. It's so fun and it's so dark and uh, the uh, casting is brilliant. And it is it is very gory, but in a very comical way. Uh, the deaths are very over the top and you're like, holy shit. I, I was so like, he did such a great job capturing the elements of all of Poe's stories and and it was so riveting and and at times very terrifying and I was now I just want to see Mike Flanagan's version of Pet Cemetery because mm. we've been put through four rather not great versions of that movie I mean I love the first one when I was at you know I saw it when it came out opening night and of yeah. course in the late 80s you're like this is the most horrifying thing I've ever seen but then when we watch it now we're like the acting's pretty kind of goofy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stephen King wrote the dialogue, and as I think we can all admit that King is an amazing writer, but his dialogue cannot be spoken out loud. 
It looks great on the page. It works on the mm -hmm. page. But when people say those things out loud, they do not sound human. It sounds clunky and goofy and, and it doesn't hold up. And also Gage coming back at the end of the movie because they were so scared, like, we can't show a dead kid. So they make him a baby, you know, and it's the mm -hmm. same kid. But man, in the I just read the book again. Mm. And what really unsettles me is the fact that like, I mean, Gage is, a, that's a closed casket funeral. Mm -hmm. Like the mortician has to explain that like, there's nothing we can do. His head was crushed, right? And, and, and when, you know, when, when he pulls him out of the grave, you know, and holds him in the, you know, he's in his, in, a, in the wrapping that he brings with him, the tarpaulin, you know, he can just feel that there's no neck bones, you know, the kid's head just lolls to one side. That's what comes out of the grave. And it sounds like the woman from the exorcist, uh, uh, Mercedes McCambridge, you know, the, the woman who died and talks like that. Mm -hmm. who smoked a whole bunch of cigarettes if you saw the documentary before she had to do the voiceovers oh, it sounds, his whole idea was like it sounds like mercedes mccambridge's exorcist voice you know and this thing that sort of resembles your child and 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 now is speaking with this other voice that to me is fucking that's that's the kind of terrifying i'm like i want people to see that because that's what scared the shit out of me when i read it it mm -hmm. wasn't the, uh it wasn't the the horror of like you know, the being brought back to life. It's that that's what's coming back. Yeah. You know, the grief of a parent is overwhelming. And I hope I, and I will never have to experience it because I'm now 53 without kids, but I can imagine how empty and, 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 and how much in the void you are when that happens. I can only imagine, but then to see that come back and it's not even your child, it looks a little bit like him, but it's all fucked up. Mm -hmm. And it's clearly got the worst intentions. And there's something way darker and scarier about King's original vision. I mean, that and the fact that nothing anybody ever they got got it wrong in in all of them, both the mood, the prequel, the original, and the dumb oh, and that stupid remake that they did where they tried to reboot, you know. But now it's Ellie gets hit by the truck, and mm -hmm. but she's like a cool teenager, right? And then she comes back, and, and if you saw it, feminism. It made me really mad because I'm like, and she, daddy, do I still look cute? And he's, he's brushing her hair and the stitches are in the back of her head. And I'm like, mm, yeah. okay. No, thank Just, you. Yeah. The whole concept I loved about that movie that, or the book that scared me is the fact that the power that place has over people is, you know, like a drug. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's been there at some point has to try and sell it against their will. Like there's a, a thing with a part of the book where Judd's telling Lewis about the pet cemetery and his inner dialogue is going, these aren't my words. I'm not saying this. I, why am I saying this? I can't stop talking about it. Why is this happening right now? And it's because the power that he owes it, right? He owes that thing, that place, uh, something. Mm -hmm. So it just has power over people. And uh, there's, uh, if you, if you haven't read it in a long time, there's a fucking scene in that book at the end the epilogue that's, so fucked up where it just Lewis is carrying his wife over the deadfall, right? A neighbor follows him to the deadfall, like follows him and stands in front of the deadfall as Lewis just walks over the deadfall, just without even looking down, just carrying his dead wife into the pet cemetery. And the guy has an inner dialogue where he's like, uh, like he's being told, like, I should walk over the deadfall with him. 
and help him bury his wife. I should help. I should be a good neighbor. And then he stops himself and he's like, what the fuck is happening? Why am I here? Like, we have to move. We can't live here anymore. <laughs> move like, right now. <laughs> it happens. It's such a little part of the book, but it's so like, like when you realize, oh, this thing just has this crazy aggressive power over everybody. So I, I love stuff like, I just wish that they would make a, 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 a lucid version of that movie that is able to carry that theme and not have to be all like the Ramones Pet Cemetery song, you know? Hey, I like that song. I love that song, but, but I want to live my life again. <laughs> so, like, talk to me, you know, is, is a modern take on a ghost story. And I'm wondering, do you have any like favorite ghost stories from when you were little? I mean, yes. Uh, I think a lot of the, the, um, I was big on Christmas ghost stories growing mm. up, mm-hmm. uh, which I still have. Um, I have a collection of uh, the cassettes of the old British radio shows where every holiday they would have uh, a run of these horror themed Christmas ghost stories. And they're fucking terrifying. Uh, I think it's called Lights Out Everybody was the name of the show, mm. uh, which you can actually listen to them now on YouTube, uh, which are so wonderful over the holidays because there's something gothic about uh, there's something I miss about the old gothic style of, of Christmas where, you know, I mean, it's the, uh, the fucking whole Bob Cratchit's ghost kind of thing. Right. Where I, I like, I like that kind of stuff where scaring uh, bosses, I yeah, love it. Scaring bosses, you know, capitalism's wrong. And what, how do we overcome, how do we overcome <laughs> that? We'll come back from the dead and with chains, the chains <laughs> of the uh, capitalist uh, pigs. Yes. Lose your chains, um, get ghost ones. <laughs> Ghost stories uh, that I like growing up. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't have any like. I, I only remember like the um, the stuff where like you know the the phone calls from the dead. Oh, I like uh, those. Yeah, there's always those ones I always liked a lot. Um, there's a book I read when I was like seven or eight, and it was a or yeah eight or nine I think actually I was before I was in my double digits and uh, it was true stories of this detective who was a paranormal investigator. And I didn't realize until later when I reread the book and I'm like, oh, he's super Christian. This whole book is about like, don't fuck with supernatural. <laughs> but he has a story in there where, uh, which is bone chilling about these uh, this family that keeps getting these phone calls and no one's on the other end of the line. And every night at the same time, the phone will ring and eventually they all just kind of camp out in the living room every night around 7 p.m. waiting for their phone call. And then they, they one, one time they're like, we should push a button or two and see if they respond to the button. Maybe it's somebody on the other end. And so they push a button and then they hear the ringtone of the button back, you know, somebody's copying them. And, uh, and so they start asking questions like, who is this? You know, who are you? And they get the, the, you know, the dial tone will happen from the push buttons on the phone. So they write all the numbers down for whichever tone it is, right? And eventually they start to figure out that there's a language here. And they start communicating with this thing and what they don't realize and what the guy's telling you through the narrative is once you start asking questions, you've opened the door. Oh, once you've opened the door. You've allowed something in. And he goes, these poor people didn't realize that now they're entering into a conversation with this thing. So they're very vulnerable. And then the father becomes possessed by this thing. He welcomes it into the home and it just goes ape shit. Like it possesses him. You know, he becomes a domestic abuser and starts shooting heroin and, you know, uh, talking about his death to everybody, how he died. And, uh, and then he had to come into the priest and they had to do an exorcism. 
And I was like, that's fucking terrifying. Like, I have a phone. I have a landline. Can that the ghost is- just come to the landline? <laughs> I remember when I was little, my favorite ghost story was one my dad would tell me. And it was about this like eccentric millionaire who had a fake golden arm. And when he was buried, someone dug it up and and stole it. And then he was haunted by the ghost who said, who has my golden arm? And then my dad, you know, he would, he's a masterful storyteller. And he would like jump at someone and say, you have it. And then we'd all... Um, turns out the man with the golden arm is about a jazz musician who was a heroin addict. <laughs> so I tell him my dad that I was like, Hey, this is about a heroin addict. He's like, but you like the story, right? It's like, yes, I did. Dad, is this about trumpeteer Chet Baker? Is this late Chet Baker? Uh, dad's so funny. Uh, yeah. Um, do you have any final thoughts on talk to me? Um, I mean, I think that people who hated it, you know, there's always going to be people who don't like stuff. You just kind of have to go, all right, you know, be not into it. But I, I think that I would implore people who really hated it to listen to what we talked about and take in the, and go watch it again. Cause I think it's going to change your opinion a lot when you, when you sort of, you know, when you, take the medicine the way we did and go, it's, it, it's very character driven. And there are certain motivations that are, that are there sort of to feed that then the narrative and, you know, the real world people. And I think that it makes the movie a lot more fun. I mean, it really do. I, it is a horror movie, but it is a fun movie input. There's, you know, also that, that goddamn song. I love it. The, the drop song that happens while they're doing the montage you know, oh uh, yes, it's it's a great piece of music, and it comes out of nowhere, and it just gives the whole movie this sort of like creepy carnival atmosphere, and you know, and but there's time that you have to pay for the ride, and you know, I mean, I guess that's my final thought is that you know, uh, whatever we see on the surface, we think we're going to be able to, it's going to help us escape whatever we're going through. Eventually, there's a cost that you have to pay for that, and in this case, you know, Mia is going to travel the nether realm and the only time she's going to see light is when someone asks her to talk to them and her time is going to be limited she'll only get to maybe exist for 90 seconds at a time forever and yeah. uh, and they really she- did a magnificent job of representing that in the film the way everything shrunk to darkness and then that one candle appeared to her that was eerie right i mean i i just i really i got to say that the guys who who made that movie came out of nowhere and just did a tremendous job for their first horror film out of the gate to be that effective and that fun and and even that polarizing for some people that's a hell of a feat i mean not many people can do something their first time out of the gate that has that kind of i think that has a cultural it's a cultural punch in the gut and and that you know the people who enjoyed it really enjoyed it Mm-hmm. And but I'm just excited to see what they do because if that's if that's how they start a conversation, then I can't wait to let them talk to me even more. Oh wow! Did I, <laughs> I knew I was doing it. I, I fell into did it. it. I was like, keep going, keep going. <laughs> so, where can people find out more about what you're working on? Uh, you can find me at uh, DerekSheenRulesWithAZ.com, and that's got all my upcoming stuff, dates, and uh, projects. Well, I haven't updated the news and projects. I'm I'm about to do some new stuff and, and that'll be updated soon. 
And then, you know, Instagram is a great place to find me. If you're over 60, Facebook. Hey, Facebook. I, share my re- I share my recipes. Uh, uh, get on there. But uh, but Instagram is a really good, great place to catch up. I stay pretty active as far as like what I'm working on there. And then mm-hmm. Facebook's for my friends, you know, my fun. And this, this episode will be coming out roughly December 1st. Is there anything you want people to know about? But I want to say, yeah. actually, you're going to be in my neck of the woods soon. You are coming yes. out of Wisconsin. Tell us about that. I am going to be at the Crucible uh, Club in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure who's on the show. Uh, I know that uh, Sasha Roster is love helping. Sasha. I'm excited. Well, and 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 uh, she's doing my um, my weekend at uh, um, Laughing Tap. I'll be at the laugh. I might as well say that too. Laughing Tap. I'll be there December eighth and seventh, eighth and ninth, eighth and ninth. And nice. uh, and Jamie there. Schreiner is also on that show. Yes, Jamie Schreiner. So if you fun. haven't seen Jamie Schreiner, I don't know how I'm supposed to follow her. I've done this before. And I was like, roles should be reversed. There is, uh, <laughs> it's like going up after the fireworks go off. And you're like, now uh, here's some Don McLean. You know, like, you don't want to, so I, and it's so exciting to watch her. She's one of my favorites. Um, I'm really stoked about that whole weekend. And then, and then we go to the Crucible in Madison. And are you going to be in town? That's a great question. I will be in town the weekend of the 8th through the 10th, but then the 11th and 12th, I'm headed to Mexico with my boyfriend. So Holy cow. So excited about that. Oh, wow. For a vacation? Vacation? Yes. Oh, yes. you're going to love it. What part of Mexico? Uh, we're going to Cancun, full-on beach vacation. Perfect. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Do, you, are you, do you drink? No. Okay, me either, me either. Uh, I was going to say, if you are a drinker, it's a fun place for bars. They're right on the, they have the beach bars where you can just sit in the water and uh, and everything's white sand. But if you're oh, not yeah. drink- My mom has already told me it's wasted on me, so. <laughs> oh. Here's the beautiful thing about Cancun. Uh, sand, water, uh, uh, food, sun, uh, music. The drinking is uh, not even important, but I was like, I've been there and I'm like, oh, if you are a drinker, you, it is a paradise for uh, <laughs> get to the next level. But uh, but I, that you're going to love it. That's uh, beautiful. And well, I, 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 I'm hoping that uh, I can catch you while I'm there. And I'm excited for the show. And I'm, I've got a bunch of new stuff that I'm doing uh, new to other new, new to people in Madison. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Madison and Milwaukee, both very fun scenes. You're going to have an awesome time. I haven't been out there since before. The pandemic. It's been the before six years. times. Oh, the before time. The old, the olden days. What, what would they call it in uh, uh, Beyond Thunderdome? I can't remember what she used to call it, what the kids called it in the way, way back. Oh yeah, this was I like one of my favorite it. movies when I was little, and it makes me really sad. I can't remember. Tweet us. <laughs> Tell us what yes. it is. <laughs> uh, uh, so, but uh, it's been forever. I think I did. I did the tap when it wasn't in the room it's in now. They had a big like beer hall that they had it in. Oh and, yeah! Uh, they first started out, and uh, and I haven't done the actual room room, so I'm excited for that and seeing everybody and Greg and those guys. I, I had a really fun time, but it was also I think still when I was drinking. So I don't think I've been to Madison sober, and this will be so it's got to be six years now. So oh, you're gonna love it and, and have actual squeaky cheese curds and talk about Ed Gein. Mm-hmm. That's what we do with all visitors. <laughs> I watched the documentary and I didn't have the heart. It was really interesting when people were like, you know, they, they have the recordings of his interviews that they found. 
they thought that was lost to time. There wasn't actually recordings of his voice. And so they just did a documentary, six parts, where they go over his confession, his taped confessions. And and I, I got an episode in and I was like, I don't need to see any. I don't need to hear this stuff. It's hard, you know. But it was interesting to hear his, to hear other people going like, we've never heard his voice, you know. Like, nobody really knew what he sounded like. And I'm like, I do. You did. <laughs> I know what he sounds like. And that's an accurate representation. Oh, that's wild. All right. Well, we'll have all the links to Derek's website and projects in the episode. And I want to thank you so much for being on tonight. It's always so fun to talk about horror with you. Thank you. Likewise. Uh, this is one of my favorite. I, I'm and also so stoked to see you and yeah. I'm excited to hear your album. Yay. Yeah. That was uh, that'll be coming out spring 2024 and uh, one of the best nights of my life. It'll be on Burn This Records, which is Brandy Posey's record label in L.A. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I'm really excited. And uh, Christy Rhodes did the artwork for the cover, which uh, punk rock icon. So thrilled. <laughs> That's uh, so awesome. Yeah. Do you have a title yet? Uh, Disassociation Vacation. Oh, perfect. When I go to my happy little me time. oh that's awesome thank you all right well that's been derek sheen i've been kristen lighty and this has been bloody mary have a great night bye bye